George Soros names his enemy at Davos. The resistance reveals their strategy for turning the nation blue in November. And porn star Stormy Daniels finally speaks out about her alleged relationship with President Trump. Sort of. You're listening to the Propaganda Report. I'm Brad Binkley here with Monica Perez. Monica, how you doing? Good. How you doing? I'm good. I saw an interview last night, an Inside Edition interview, Stormy Daniels finally speaks out. Stormy Daniels is the porn star who allegedly Trump had an affair with, who allegedly spanked him with a magazine that had his own face on it. This is a story that was reported (laughs) by the New York Times a couple weeks ago, and they've been kind of talking about it here and there in the news. But the whole thing, you know, just like all the other news we see in the news, I'm going to continue to say news. It has no sources. (laughs) There's no real concrete sources. So you know why I find I'm skeptical about that story and the Christopher Steele fake name dossier story. Same reason. Oh, because of the name? No, because Trump is a well-known germaphobe. You don't have people pee on you, although pee is sterile for a minute. Uh, I don't think that would stop him from sleeping with a porn star. Really? porn star he could get a somebody as good looking if not better like the old stories are that just like bill clinton he would point out to his henchmen people in the crowd who he wanted to proposition and i told you about the time i was behind him in a store once in new york right and he just pointed to like the potato chips he wanted to eat and had somebody else touch (laughs) stuff for him yes yeah well, he shakes people's weird. hands now. He, he, I mean, he washes his hands, obviously. Well, he probably does. Did you ever hear that Obama reading his own biography? And, and it's hilarious because he describes a scene with George W. Bush where every time Bush shakes somebody's hand, he squirts uh, antibacterial, like Purell on his hands. Yeah. So he and Obama were shaking hands with people and he goes to Obama, want to squirt? So there's a there's a clip of Obama in his own voice saying, want to squirt? <laughs> but I think that's how they deal with it. But I, I don't know. You really think it's true germaphobe would opt for a porn star? I think in certain situations, get supermodels. Absolutely. Are you it, saying porn stars are more desirable than supermodels? Because Melania was a supermodel, right? Right in front of you. You're not seeing all the dirty stuff. You're seeing a beautiful woman. I don't know, man. And Stormy wasn't bad looking in her day, I guess. She's not bad looking, but look at what he gets. You know what I mean? You got to ask yourself, is Melania willing to spank him with a magazine that has his own face? No, but some up and coming Melania would. (laughs) I think germophobia prevents very few guys from sleeping with a porn star. I don't necessarily believe the story. It wouldn't surprise me, but I saw that she finally spoke out and I'm thinking, great. Finally, someone involved in one of these stories is going on the record where we can see it with our own eyes, hear it with our own ears. So I want to play you three clips. The first clip, I want you to tell me what's strange about this first clip. Uh Uh-oh, a quiz. Okay. Yeah, it's a quiz. It's going to be fun. (laughs) Okay. Jim Morritt from Inside Edition is the guy who's interviewing her. I sat down with Stormy Daniels, the adult film star who, according to the Wall Street Journal, was paid $130,000 to keep silent about an alleged affair she had with Donald Trump in 2006. 
Stormy says she's been trying to ride out the scandal in the small Texas town where she lives with her husband and their seven-year-old daughter. What was strange about that clip? I don't know. Storm. Listen to it one more time. Okay. Remember what we were just talking about. Okay. I sat down with Stormy Daniels, the adult film star who, according to the Wall Street Journal, was paid $130,000 to keep silent about an alleged affair she had with Donald Trump in 2006. Stormy says she's been trying to ride out the scandal in the small Texas town where she lives with her husband and their seven-year-old daughter. All right. Uh, 2006, seven-year-old daughter would be born in 2011. She has a husband. She's trying to ride out the scandal in a small Texas town. Uh, Wall Street Journal says she was paid money to not discuss this. I don't know. He started the clip off by saying, I sat down with Stormy Daniels, who, according to the Wall Street Journal, (laughs) why would he need to say according to the Wall Street Journal? She said that because she denies it. And then he said, allegedly, and then the second part of it, he goes, Stormy says she's trying to ride out the storm or whatever. Yes. So he cites her. But on the, when it comes to the allegation, yeah. he, he continues to cite the Wall Street and Journal. And they're all citing the Wall Street Journal. And I read all the articles in the journal about it. One of them, and they all they all say in the beginning that this all really happened. And then a couple of paragraphs in say, somebody said, you know, of course. But in one of them, it says, documents show connection. And right. then it goes on to explain how this lawyer is... uh created a Delaware corporation or whatever, and he's the same lawyer who allegedly paid her off. And sometimes payoffs are made through corporations. Like that's literally what it said. I was looking. Yeah, I know. And I saw that article. I was trying to figure out, wait a minute. You made it sound like it says like document. Right. And it absolutely does not. It's really those publications, the way they're written now, Washington Post especially, should be sued. For I mean, this stuff is absolutely misrepresenting them. The laws against libel have gotten so insanely. It's the new norm. Lax, but yeah. And the Washington Post has been in bed with the CIA for at least 50 years. So they're not going to get any grief for this stuff. But yeah. And Amazon, who wants to be inside your home and your bedroom and everywhere, owns them, right? Oh, yeah. Bezos. Bezos. All right. Here's a. About a minute's worth of the interview, and keep in mind that they're sitting right next to each other, staring at each other while he's asking these questions. Sometimes they cut that stuff, and it looks like they're in the same room, but they're not. Like somebody else did the interview. Are you positive? These two are in the same room. Stormy was less than forthcoming when I asked her about the allegations. Did you have a sexual relationship with Donald Trump? You can't answer that. You said that Donald Trump was chasing you around the hotel room in his tidy whities Did that happen? Uh, there are reports you've been paid $130,000 to be quiet. Have you been paid to keep quiet? Have you signed a non-disclosure agreement? Are you frustrated that you can't talk about these things? You clearly want to say, you, you're, you're looking at me like you can't talk. I'm, I'm taking this that you can't say anything. Is that accurate? I'm taking that as a yes. You're so pretty. 
I guess we'll have to leave it at that. And she wasn't even giving like, like yes signals. She was just staring at him and kind of making weird expressions. Where did the chasing her around the room thing come from? One of her friends who he also Ah! interviewed told that story. Okay. So not her. But she did. She did get to turn the tables and she did get to ask this guy a question herself. Here it is. Do you have a magic wand? (laughs) Oh, you nailed it. You figured out what it was all about. Remember? Oh, to make it seem more plausible that the dossier is true with the hookers peeing on so the bed. You actually yeah. gave the best reason why that dossier was false the first day it came out. Do you remember? No. Because Christopher Steele is obviously a fake name that is supposed to make you think of a spy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, Steele. And nobody could find him for like six months. And then there's pictures of him. There is a picture of him floating around where he looks like an actor. You know what I mean? He just, he, I don't know. I just find it so staged feeling. Yeah. Yeah, that, that whole thing is just, it's a joke. But what they've been doing is they've been putting stories like this out here and there to normalize everything. A year ago might have been like, there's no way in hell I'm going to believe any of that stuff they just told me. Now they can tell us stuff that's really crazy, and it doesn't seem crazy anymore because crazy has become normal. Well, this is something weird about the psychology of all this. Oh, and it's, it's one, of the, one of the many, many white papers in the World Economic Forum, the, the group that's behind Davos, on their myriad of websites and, and policy initiatives and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they talk about analyzing social media for for the militarization of the youth, and it and it's not in a negative sense. It's very weird how they talk about it. They want they want to militarize the youth. It feels like to me, but the idea it's and we've talked about how AI and VR, uh, virtual reality or artificial, whatever. I don't know. Uh, how that is like the next step in this process. But the fact that in such a short amount of time, we can, we can forget how to assess reality. You know what I'm saying? Like, obviously the movies have been kind of trying to do that to us for decades, but now stuff that's just ridiculous on its face. Like I will say, I really don't know what happened in in Vegas, the Vegas shooting thing, Mm -hmm. but I'm, there's no doubt in my mind. I'm not trying to convince anybody else. I'm not looking for an argument. There's no doubt in my mind that if I, by whatever method, managed to blow out a window in one of those places, which I think those are, are, that glass is hard to break. So I assume you'd have to really shoot it out, but whatever. You blow out a window on the 30th floor of one of those things, and before you can shoot 500 people, there's a helicopter with a sniper in it blowing you away. Just nothing is going to convince me that that is not true. Yeah. Because that is my understanding of reality. That is what a trillion dollars or whatever, $7 trillion of government a year buys you. That's what, that's, they, they have total control over Las Vegas and shooting fish in a barrel. 
which you can see from a mile away. Obviously, it's a major security issue. They know what they're doing. So everybody believes it, though, and they believe it. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't even believe like a forensic files or a CSI that had yeah. they cleaned up the scene the next day. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't believe that. Like you would have, you know, Jerry Orbach who like, what the hell happened? All the needles, you know, what'd you guys sweep? You know, <laughs> like what the heck? Shell casings are all gone. It's just not reality. And we're accepting it. These, these silly stories that make no sense at this and they're total diversion. So this thing about Davos, Trump spoke at Davos today. And one of the headlines I saw on like the Google, news app on my phone was Trump speaks at Davos while Mueller firing rumors swirl. Yeah. And the Mueller firing rumors are a bunch of baloney to fill up the headlines. So you don't actually think about what Trump is doing in Davos talking to the, the actual world government, because that's really what those people are. They are the world government. They don't, they can't just bust into your business with their own guns and make you do what they want to do, but they are infiltrating every institution. They, they talk about it. The industry, government, business, academics, everything in every city in the whole world. They are there to control every aspect of society and life. And he's there <laughs> doing business with them. So, yeah, some would argue that that he's there telling them that America's open for business. That's exactly what he's doing there. And their their tagline is public private partnerships for you know, a better world based on our vision of the future. Right. I, I, that's not what I want from Trump. That's not what what the people who elected him uh, elected him to do. Now, I get what you're saying, but. I also – someone who was against them, I don't see how they could not go to that. You know what I mean? If it was Ron Paul, I don't see how he could not attend that. If all his enemies are gathering in one place, I think you would have to go there. Why? Because you have to – you can't let your – if you know your enemies are conspiring somewhere – you you have to get information on them. Yeah, they would you, you never have to go there and try to Ron influence Paul. some of them to come over to your side. Do they what? would never invite Ron Paul. It's like IPAC, oh, right. American Israeli. You know, they did not invite Ron Paul. They invited Trump. Trump plays ball with these international organizations. He's there to cut deals, probably no, for himself. Be. The infrastructure plan you sent me is absolutely in line with the way these guys operate. It's public-private partnerships where they use government mandates, government money, government revenue um, laws to generate revenue for private companies to institute projects where they're going to get monopoly returns because nobody's going to compete with them. And it's going to shape the world the way these guys want it shaped. I see no circumstances where a president that is legitimate can completely cut them off and and not deal with them. Well, there are laws against elected officials uh, being involved in bodies that 
international bodies that uh, influence our policy. So the guy who runs the world, founds and runs and introduced Trump, Klaus Schwab, he is on the steering committee of the Bilderberg Group. Now, elected officials are not supposed to attend the Bilderberg meetings. So it's really, it's not, he's not in the belly of the beast trying to cut his way out. I mean, that's not what that place is for. Right. I'm not talking about Trump specifically. I'm just saying in general, I I don't see it. It would be great to be a fly on the wall there, but that's, that's, that's not the reality of the people who are attending. Yeah, I'm just more theorizing that I I see no circumstance where, and I told, I know that the, it's a bunch of unelected officials at these things, but someone who gets elected, if they just shut down and, you know, blacklist all these people and don't ever communicate with them and instantly turn them all into their enemy, then he's done. He doesn't have a chance. He proclaims himself their enemy. You know what I mean? Not talking about last year. No, I'm talking about. I'm trying to theorize a a situation where, if I were invited, I would go, and I would try to gather information. That is true. And but once they realized who I was, they wouldn't give me any information if they really thought I was Batman or whatever. And and in the case of Trump, it's good to remember that Scaramucci told them last year he's their best hope. And and one of the headlines that I was yeah. re- in reading this world economic stuff was uh, it was this is the actual headline. Brexit can be reversed if public opinion shifts, says Tony Blair. This is being used for the pendulum to swing. And Scaramucci gave foreshadowing to it last year at Davos. And now we have Trump there now right on the heels of that infrastructure plan, which which talks about these public private partnerships and infrastructure is one of the many things that, uh, you know, one of their pull down menus was, is about shaping the future of infrastructure, yeah. you know, long-term investing in infrastructure and development, which is what his plan is all about. Just in line with this stuff. No, I, I'm not disagreeing with, with that. I'm just theorizing more broadly about how I would handle that or how I speculate a president that was, Truly against them would handle that. I hear you, but it's it's not. I do not think it is possible to single handedly beat them at their own game, even just at the thing. Like, I just don't think so. Well, and that's exactly my point is is there's going to be people there with conflicting uh, goals and wants also. I'm not sure about that. You want to conduct psychological warfare on them as well. I'm not sure about that. All over this stuff. And these things are tightly controlled and vetted. It all talks about you have to get everyone on the same page. We have to establish the goals that we're going to go out into the world and influence governments and policies. The first thing we need to do is make sure we know exactly what we're talking about and get everybody on the same page over and over again. And you see it with the Facebook stuff, with Obama and McCain talking about a common set of facts, a common set of goals, common ground. It's all about getting everybody to think the same thing and then go out and implement the agenda. No, I it's, agree with it's that. It's scary. It, I'm this talking about human psychology, though. People might be following orders on the outside, but on the inside, they're envious. They're, they want to be the one on top. They don't like the way someone talked to them. The depth of this network, the breadth and depth of this, if you're going rogue, it's it's like a, it's like a web, you know, you can or a net. You can cut a piece of it, but it's not going to change the structure at all. I don't think there's any hope. And I've known people personally who've gotten on the outside, and all they want to do is get back on the inside. 
Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I, I can't really name names, but I'm like, uh, I'm exasperated. I'm like, you saw, you saw like how they treat you, you know, but, but there's no place that being out in the cold is, you don't get rich that way. Yeah. I, I think there's hope. I think we give these elites too much credit. Not to say they're not smart, but they're not, you know, superhuman. I'm not saying there's no hope. I'm saying this organization, if you want, when people talk about us and them, who's the shadow government, who runs the world, who are the people, how do they communicate your tinfoil hat? Just go to the World Economic Forum and try to read. Just click on anything that interests you and keep clicking until you get to the white paper, the PDF, the 30 pages on how we are going to analyze social media and figure out how to manipulate the youth in, in, and promote, seems to me, militarization? Or how are we going to control agriculture and the food supply? Yeah. How are we, they have a, a center for the fourth industrial revolution in San Francisco, where they, they, they're, part of what they're doing is introducing the protocols for drone usage around the world. And they've already launched their experiment in Rwanda delivering vaccines to every child through drones. That's the World Economic Forum. They are carving out the pathways for all of this stuff. Uh, VR, gene editing, uh, just everything. I know. I have about 10 clips that <laughs> speaks to all of those things. I know. I didn't, I, like I was telling you before we started, I was, was trying to just talk, look at what is happening in Davos this week. But but in trying to figure out what exactly the World Economic Forum was up to, it was impossible not to fall into rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And it reminded me so much of like, it's almost even the websites are designed similarly. Uh, the Bosch Foundation, another German one. A lot of them came out of Germany. I think we talked about this, the Marshall Plan after World War II. A lot of these think tanks and in all the Western countries and, of course, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment. Google's doing it now. Eric Schmidt has one of these. I mean, they're just uh, – they call it global governance, but it's, you know, <laughs> secretly world government, you know, that's what they're doing. And and they're doing it through the back door like that North American Union thing or where they say what we are what we really want to do is, is get off – off the books organizations like the Bilderberg Group, where the legislators come up for their marching orders and they help us normalize all the laws to the strictest possible standard. You know what I'm saying? They do it. They are, that's how they're actually, if they can change the laws, they don't need to be, they don't need to have an elected president. They're just like subversive technocrats who are really, really organized. And focused and they do psychological studies. I mean, they, they just, it's, I was overwhelmed by the resources and the scope of their project. Oh yeah. These guys have been studying human psychology and testing ways to manipulate the masses for over a hundred years. This is in the here and now you can go and go to worldeconomicforum.com or whatever. And you can see them admitting that they're doing it in real time. No, I mean, I'm about to play you clips of George yes, Soros admitting that he's doing it. <laughs> All right. Soros gave a really, really long speech at, at Davos. Basically, if you want to sum up the speech, 
He hates nationalism. Trump is a threat to the world. He's going to nuke us all. Facebook helped put that dangerous threat into office, so he needs, he's going to hand over power, the power of social media and the internet to the EU. That's, Whoa! That's kind of the sum of it. Holy cannoli. That's big. Yeah. I listened to his speech on double speed, and it sounds slower than people <laughs> on normal speed. So bear with some of these clips. Some of them is hard to understand. Oh In this first clip, he is telling us where he is spending his money, his Open Society Foundation money, and why. Now that the Open Society is also endangered in the United States and Europe, we are spending more than half our budget closer to home. Because what is happening here is having a negative impact on the whole world. Not only the survival of open society, but the survival of our entire civilization is at stake. The rise of leaders such as Kim Jong-un in North Korea and Donald Trump in, in the United States have much to do with this. Both seem to be willing to risk a nuclear war in order to keep themselves in power. Donald Trump is going to start a nuclear war to, stay, to keep the reins of this tyrannical dictatorship that he seized by force? You know what that is. You know what he's doing. What? He, he's delivering propaganda to the elites the same way CNN tells everybody that Trump's just going to click on the nuke button and blow everybody up the way they're delivering uh, propaganda to their audience. It's just uh, to a I more think sophisticated audience. I think at, we are the target of that speech. You think it's them? You think it's those people? I think there's probably a lot of people that are that are there. That yeah, you might be right. I you know I I have been surprised at when I've met over the years people in positions of power or respect or authority or whatever. Who like go to things like that, and uh, they they do seem to smoke the Kool Aid. They they seem so smart, and then they're like anti Republican, <laughs> you know. And you're like, but you're pro Democrat, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, you yeah. believe in Bill Clinton, but you don't believe in George W. Bush. Like, you had me at the Republicans are full of it, but you lost me with you know, if only Bill Clinton were still president. It's like I don't. He talks about that. He talks about the two-party system. Should I? Oh, really? Oh, I want to hear that. Should I tell you just what the open society really means? I think we talked about it once briefly on air, but. Yeah, go ahead. Just like in one sentence. The open society is what Karl Popper, um, I have his two volume, the open society and its enemies on my desk. He's the guy who inspired Soros. He might've even been his professor at the London school of economics, which is a hotbed of, um, I don't know if you want to call it, communism or I don't know what, but certainly these globalists. And um, and his idea is that tribalism is the enemy. It, what he means by an open society doesn't mean like f freedom. He means like borderless, which really is, of course, not a stepping stone to anarcho-capitalism as I would have it, but to a stepping stone to world government. But it's a little paradoxical because they they don't they don't like identity. They don't like you to have national identity or tribal. They call it tribalism, tribal identity. And and I'm 
I know I said one sentence, <laughs> but, but here's the thing. What they do by fostering mass migrations of people by destroying some places and opening the borders of others when they're doing that. And then they say to us, like, we need to embrace multiculturalism and all this kind of stuff. And identity is great and identity politics and all that conflict and all that. In my mind, by their own philosophy, it has to be a stepping stone to a monoculture. It has to be because that's what they say is the end of strife, is that we're all the same. There was an old sci-fi movie or Twilight Zone or whatever where the guy said, you know, I, I just wish there was no racial strife anymore. And he was a guy who, like anything he wished came true. When he woke up, everybody was gray. You know, like <laughs> it was just that was the end of the racial strife, but it was also the end of race and culture and uh I'm not even advocating for one thing or another. I'm just saying this must be a stepping stone because he does advocate that stuff. But that's why he goes in and creates revolutions in these countries because he wants to shape them in this kind of globalist whatever. He's about to tell you his plans to to do all that. All right, let's hear it. This clip, he this is the second clip. He tells us – he makes his predictions for 2018. Keep in mind that he just told us that he's spending most of his money in America right now. Clearly, I consider the Trump administration a danger to the world, but I regard it as a purely temporary phenomenon that will disappear in 2020 or even sooner. I give President Trump credit for motivating his core supporters brilliantly, but for Every core supporter, he has treated, uh, a great, he has created a greater number of core opponents who are equally strongly motivated. That's why I expect a democratic landslide in 2018. Oh my so gosh. He predicts Trump's going to be out of office maybe before 2020, whatever that means. That and then was he so, such a. Like a provocative statement. Right. And then the laughs. You're right. There's some people that chuckled in the back. And then he, the landslide. You're right. Just like we've been talking about. Is this an unintended consequence? Is this something that Trump is actually going to achieve the exact opposite of everything he said he wanted because he's that bad a businessman? Because he's that bad at getting what he wants? He could not have achieved this with Hillary. I don't know if that's going to happen, and, and I would argue that they could. These guys don't just have one option. They they keep multiple balls in the air. They're like improvisers. They use whatever energy is there to get to their goal, and they adapt as the circumstances change. It's like cybernetics. Most flexible thing in the system takes control of the system. I agree. The you system. looked at they looked at the Tea Party, which I I assume they did not create, and. They are inspired by it, as you point out, with like indivisible and stuff. They're inspired by that. And I think that's when they had the idea it's better to lose and have a tea party than it is to win and face the tea party. Actually, the in the end, they'll have both. Indivisible is lying when they're saying they're inspired by the tea party. They're inspired by Lenin's playbook. Um, yes, because it isn't the tea right. party. What they describe, you're absolutely right. Thank you for that. What they describe is not the tea party. It's, it's not that there was no policy in the tea party, that it was purely agitating, that it was, yes, you're 100% right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Forget it. <laughs> Never mind. They say they are inspired by it, but in, in reality, regardless of what it comes from, I believe that 
it's the age old dialectic. They need, they, they're creating these, the reaction and they're hand delivering the solution. And if they win, here's the thing if they win or if they lose in the 2018 elections, they've, been, they've spent so much time agitating and they're going to continue agitating everything we see on television, Russia, DACA, Stormy spanking Trump. It's all intended to keep people agitated and drive them to the polls and vote. If they if they were to win, that's going to release that tension. That's going to give them a sense of satisfaction. I know we talk, talked about this before. If they were to lose, that's going to push them over the top, a, a small sect of them over the top, and make them willing to use violence to get what they want. This this uh, I've talked about this book I have that lays out Bolshevik strategy a lot. It talks about that exact thing. You drive people to despair, and once they realize the system will not work no matter what they do, you can get them to do whatever violence you want. And that's not going to be everybody, but there's going to be a small group of people. So if they win, they win. If they lose, they have a little army that'll go around uh, committing violent acts. For and what is and what is that? What purpose does that serve? That's how you can start a revolution. Soros, he he's helped destabilize a bunch of countries. That that's how you do it. Yeah. Is you create people willing to do yeah. the dirty work for you. And by the way, I don't I don't know if people realize this, but uh, the the latest. Ukrainian revolution, you know, everybody says Putin annexed Russia. The guy who was Soros's henchman over there was Pierre Omidyar, who uh, was he the PayPal guy? No. Is he eBay? What did he do? He's a tech billionaire and he's the guy who bankrolls Snowden and Glenn Greenwald. Oh, really? Yes. So you and he's out there creating u.s government uh coups in other countries ebay he was the ebay guy well soros is about to talk about how basically facebook is the devil and and he he basically tells them that their time is run up here in a second oh yes and yet he's funding all their efforts through this first draft news oh fix fake fake news that's very interesting and let me just add to that whole ukraine thing i remember when the European bond crisis was at its peak, Soros said, uh, fear of Russia will, will bind the Europeans back together. That's what he said. And that, that was, and I mentioned it on air. And this was years ago. I didn't see Russia coming at all in this way, but anyway. Now so, stay tuned for clip five, I believe, I'm ready, I'm ready. or four on that. All right. Here's this personal oh, really? goal. Yeah, all these things you're saying, he says. That's why I did not hear his speech. Yeah, I know. I know. That's yes. what I think is interesting. That's why I picked these clips. Yes, yes, you're very good at that. It has, saves me a lot of work, although I spent the entire day reading this World Economic Forum stuff because I was just – it doesn't take much to read between the lines. Um, it takes a teeny bit, but uh, once you just understand that they're talking about controlling every aspect of the earth from food to your body. I mean, transportation, drones, driverless, everything. Well, that's what Soros says in one, in one of these clips during the speech is he says Facebook and other IT companies are a threat to democracy and a threat to an individual human's autonomy and ability to think. Therefore we need to give control of it over to the EU. Yeah, well, the the thing is that they act like we're the only ones who can really handle this power and we're doing it for your own good. But that takes a lot of faith in people like George Soros. Do you really think he's doing this stuff for your own personal good? 
and that do you really want the European mentality to dominate our policies? I don't know. No, Did I miss your point? He does. I wasn't saying that I wanted that. I was telling you what he's saying. Like the logic in what he's saying is their threat to democracy. Therefore, let's give it to the EU, which that's also a threat to democracy. <laughs> right. is what I was implying. <laughs> right. Okay. All right, let's hear it. My personal goal in the United States is to help reestablish a functioning two-party system. This will require not only a landslide in 2018, but also a democratic party that will uh, aim at at non-partisan redistricting, the appointment of well-qualified judges, a properly conducted uh, census, and other measures that a functioning two-party system requires. Dude, rage is rising. A functioning two-party system yeah. means a democratic landslide. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nonpartisan, de- re- nonpartisan redistricting to ensure a democratic landslide. Sober-minded judges who are Democrats. You know what I mean? Democrat. Right. I mean, he's he's more sophisticated than this. He is the guy. He is the boogeyman. He's there for. Republicans to point to as the deep state. He is there for that. That's what I think he is. I agree that he's out a little bit more than he used to be. And and he's but nobody watches this stuff, though. Well, but I think pieces trickle out. You know, it's it's not sometimes you like when you have a polar bear in captivity, you have to hide the food or you goes crazy, won't eat it. You know, or is it a grizzly bear? Yeah, sometimes you have to hide it or people won't you know, just a little bit or people won't believe it's they'll think it's propaganda. You know what I'm saying? But here was what really I, I knew it with Soros anyway. But when I saw when I was in Europe and I saw in the newspaper a story and the picture was a billboard in Hungary that said George Soros is trying to manipulate our immigration policy. And I think it might even have been in English. But uh they were literally painting Soros as the devil. And that's when I realized that like he's being, it's, it's my thing of going out in a blaze of glory is the new golden parachute or, you know, fading into the sunset. He's there to, to draw fire, to polarize. He's setting himself up as the anti-Trump. He was behind Obama, you know, Obama and Trump are these antitheses, but they're not, they both do, the same stuff, you know, they both favor the, the corporatism. They both want to build infrastructure. They both increase debt. They both fight the same wars. They they do all the same stuff and it benefits all these same people. These people are Democrats and, you know, or whatever, socialist, fascist. It's the same because they want public-private partnership, which is the public, the government creates all these mandates, taxes up the wazoo, makes sure that they're in control of everything, and then they outsource it to the private sector, but not in a competitive where the private sector is competing to build roads that people want and pay for. The government mandates the roads and awards it to this private sector, decides on the profit they're going to make no matter what, so there's no risk, no competition. It's just, And that's the fascism end of it. And that's what all these, you know, it's all the same. So for him to act like, 
a democratic landslide is a, is a victory for good government. You know, it's, it's just a, it's just a victory for the keeping the two party psyop relevant to the yeah. population. And he, I didn't pull this clip because it was too unintelligible, but one of his arguments for handing control of social media over to the EU is that if they don't, then dictators will partner with big IT firms and there will be fascism and totalitarianism like we've never seen. So we can't not engage in and believe the little zeros and ones on our glowing boxes. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, he needs to save us from that. To me, it sounded like he was arguing that the EU should be the, the dictator instead of these other. Dictators. Yes, yes, I hear what you're saying. But the fact that somebody's a dictator, you know, somebody has to be a dictator because we have these glowing boxes in our hands. And when it says something, when it has a picture of of, you know, I. Uh, if it has somebody saying a bad word, we have to say the bad word. We cannot yeah, control yeah. ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't have to do that. It's always all about control. When you read this World Economic Forum stuff, every element is about control and shaping and dictating. It's all there is nothing is left for for humanity. It's as if they're running a farm. <laughs> oh, an animal farm. Yeah. <laughs> he talks about Orwell. No. I never actually read Animal Farm. I never read that one. I read it when I was a kid. I can't remember much about it, though. (sighs) Let me say something about something you mentioned a second ago. The communist, part of their playbook is they operate legally through the democratic process to try and legitimize themselves. This is how they – they used to just be open communist revolutionary. Until 1935, they realized that was too exclusive, and you you walk up to somebody and you're like, let's – Take over the world. I'm a communist. People are like, whoa, dude. I don't want to do it. So they stopped using the communist language and they started, you know, co-opting organizations in the name of equality, in the name of progressives were their main target. Those are their main target because they believe progressives are the most vulnerable, vulnerable people and they believe they're easiest to separate from the family and corrupt. That, that's that's what Lenin's. Stalin, that's what their papers say, the the Congress, the Communist Congress International. Um, but they would also have kind of a few organizations out, kind of like the Communist Party of America. And the job of those organizations is to slowly legitimize, if possible, is to slowly create the like, you know, maybe 30 years ago, someone says, hey, I'm a communist. Everybody's like, whoa, they're just they, they freak out. It scares them. Now, today, if you tell somebody, hey, a lifelong communist is the co-chair, the honorary co-chair of the Women's March movement. She was the third woman on America's most wanted fugitive list back in the 70s. Oh, that was so long ago. A Black Panther. You tell them that (laughs) and they go, it's not communist. But even if it is, so what? So what? It says that in this book I'm reading. It says the job of the communists that are out who are operating legally as opposed to the ones who are lying and, and deceiving is to create the so what factor is so you tell people you're communist and they go, so what? And then suddenly 
they can more of them can start to come out. The same thing I think is going on with George Soros. Used to be you could tell people about George Soros and it would scare them. Now people are talking about George Soros in the uh, mainstream media. Somebody say, has to control it. Soros funded this organization. They go, so what? He's about equality. He's about progress. He's about globalism, just like me. They've created that so yeah. what factor. Well, a couple of things spring to mind. One is that in both Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals and Howard Laswell, was that his name? Yeah. Harold, Harold Laswell, who wrote National Security and Individual Freedom or something like that. Uh, they both kind of talked about how you have to go to town meetings. You have to, you know, people, you have to just talk to people in your community, get each one of them to kind of open up to your ideas and whatever, infiltrate that way. And uh, regarding the the so what factor, I, I have several people have said this to me when I talk about like guys like this. It's really it's really Klaus Schwab who runs the World Economic Forum is probably closer to being somebody who really runs the world than George Soros, who draws the fire. But uh, that's not true. George Soros is really all over it. Um, but when I tell people there that these guys are out there to control the world, I've had more than one person tell me that they would feel better. They are so horrified at the chaos and the anarchy in the world today that they would feel better if somebody was actually controlling it, even if it was like a mostly bad person. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that talk about need for security. Yeah. Soros creates a bunch of the chaos, which he alludes to. I have two more clips from him and he basically makes threats in these next two clips. All right. This is when he puts the IT giants on notice, Facebook and Google. So when he says the platforms, that's who he's just been talking about. The owners of the platform giants consider themselves the masters of the universe. But, in fact, they are slaves to preserving their dominant position. It's only a matter of time before the global dominance of the U.S. IT monopolies is broken. Davos is a good place to announce that their names, days are numbered. Regulation and taxation will be their undoing, and EU Competition Commissioner Vestager will be their nemesis. The Internet uh, monopolies have neither the will nor the inclination to protect society against the consequences of their actions. That turns them into a menace, and it, fail, it falls to the regulatory authorities to protect society against them. In the United States, the regulators are not strong enough to stand up their political influence. The European Union is better situated because it doesn't have any platform giants of its own. Wow. A nemesis. That was really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I I uh I will say this is when I got turned off of like public private and privatization, so called. I'm for free markets. I'm an anarcho capitalist. I don't I, I but when I used to see students in Europe marching against austerity and people here 
like fake libertarians or conservatives or whatever, whatever being pro austerity as if that were, um, you know, a step towards freedom or privatizing whatever. And then I looked at, I just kind of took a survey and a good, like a sampling and a good example was Carlos Slim. Carlos Slim, so the Mexican government had a telecom monopoly. They had a state-run phone company. They privatized it and, quote, sold it to Carlos Slim, who then became the richest person in the world for a while. And he had 80% of the landlines. And now, and then cell phones came around, and he has, I think, 95% of the cell phone traffic. So how is that possible if it's really a free market? Yeah. You know, for sure, one thing they must do, they have to close the border to AT&T, right? So the government is protecting his monopoly, at least from foreign competition. So so when I see when Soros here is talking about big tech being this monopoly and and having no social responsibility whatsoever and the, the co- competitions are in Europe, which is hilarious. They have a government agent in charge of creating competition. You know, it's because they created a problem of no competition in the first place, which is what regulations do. They actually limit competition by creating these barriers to entry where people, companies have to be able to deal with the bureaucracy before they're permitted to function. But in the big tech situation, the more you dig into it, the more you see how, I mean, these are not natural monopolies. There's no reason for there to be only one Facebook, only one Twitter. Uh, now there is because it's totally well established and everybody's on those. So once once you once you have a network that covers the globe, you know, once there are landlines all over Mexico and you own them all, it's going to be very hard for someone to compete with you. It's a network effect. So when he actually Josh, talks about that, I, I didn't pull that clip. Oh, but. No, I didn't pull that clip because I didn't quite understand what he was saying. But he, the network effect, he talks about at length during yeah, his. Yeah, that's speech. that's how come these things are now intractable monopolies. You're so smart. Me? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I don't hear that too much. My uh, my domestic capacity. Thank you. Thank you. So so, but the monopoly thing, they uh. That once you've created it and then you then you want to regulate it, control it, you know, privatize it, compromise with them and all that kind of stuff. But it was a created situation. If they hadn't done it in the first place, if you had a free market in the first place, you wouldn't have this problem. And uh, and it's done on purpose, I think, to control uh, uh, the conversation. So. You know, it, that same old story I've told you, you know, we've talked about before, like they. The Department of Defense invented the internet, um, although my Swiss friend said it was invented in Switzerland. Maybe it was. Maybe in Davos. So this, so, so they put it in place for us to self-register, and then they they can control the information by controlling the the conduits: YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. If all that stuff is under tight control, they don't have to worry about the anarchy. You know the the ideas in the marketplace being out of out of control true anarchy. So he's talking about highly controlled. But the control is the problem. Right. In my opinion, there is positively no such thing as a natural monopoly. 
And I'll tell yeah. you why. People say that there are national monopolies, that, you know, landlines and stuff like that are national monopolies. They're not. Because there's always a substitute. You can, or you can just live without it. You can all, now they've made it so you can't live without it. That's what he talked about. That right there is he said that companies are forced to use it. So people can't live without it. Yeah. And that's, that's how they justify regulating monopolies. But, but in, you know, I've thought a lot about this at water and air and food. And kids are addicted to it. That was the other reason. Yes. That's another, you know, that's their, one of the prongs. We did the whole WSB show on it last time. One of the prongs of justifying reigning in not sex, violence, and vulgarity, but political ideas. That's all they care about in, in reining this stuff in. But the monopoly thing, uh, the only things that we absolutely need and cannot, there's no substitute for, are things that are not truly scarce. So we need food, water, shelter, clothing, you know, our physical necessities, maybe companionship, whatever. But, you know, <laughs> I need companionship, but I'm not sure that's a, if you actually have to have it. But those things you you can, in in a free society, you know, unless somebody's actually controlling the whole world's food supply, which is definitely in the plan. Uh, Habitat One was like the early, early UN predecessor to sustainability, which was championed by the guy who founded and still runs the World Economic Forum, which is now meeting in Davos, Carl Schwab, Klaus Schwab. Um, they want to control food supply and everything like that. They have to they have to control that stuff because that's the only thing we really cannot live without. Everything else you can live without. You can live without roads and phones and you can live without everything. But food, water, you know, so if you when you think of it, the reason... I'm not saying that we would all just have bare sustenance. I'm saying if you're not terrified of losing the absolute best thing, you know, the, the, um, the world would look different if you didn't have monopolies and control and this technology or that technology, but it's not like you wouldn't have anything. It's not like you wouldn't have roads if roads were private. You would. There were 400 private road companies before the Civil War. And the public ones were disasters over and over again. You can read the real Lincoln. I think Tom DiLorenzo maybe wrote that. And he talks about how there were laws like the public governments may never, you know, in Illinois and other, uh, maybe Indiana had laws. Governments cannot engage in public works. It is a disaster. They screw it up. So I'm saying that that people call public goods and uh, these are things that the government has to provide. They do not. You you can absolutely live without all of it. And lots and lots of awesome stuff would emerge. Uh, and we'd have a very different looking society probably. But we don't need protection from monopolists. Monopolists are basically always in everywhere a government phenomenon. Yeah. Thank you. Somebody out there is listening <laughs> who thought of, you know, who's like, yes, I've thought of it. You know what I mean? Like maybe you didn't, but like in libertarian circles, that kind of thing is um, this public goods question and the natural monopoly question. They're, they're the question you have to deal with when people challenge the soundness of your ideology. And, and I, yeah. I, I basically deny the existence of any of it. And if you have, if you have the time for a thought experiment, like I was kind of touching on there, 
just think about what do you really need? And beyond that, you know, if you really, if you really wanted to trade with your friend who has some exotic avocado tree, you'd, you'd probably just do, use a little shoe leather to carve a path. And then maybe somebody somewhere is going to invite a, invent a unicycle. You know what I mean? You're going to get stuff. Right. And it's probably going to be better because nature, it's Coase's theorem. It'll always get to the most efficient allocation. I totally agree. He's playing off the addiction and it's inescapable idea, which they create on purpose. We talked about that with VR. They're going to, they, they obsolete the technology and they end up putting stuff in that you're required to use. And he was kind of alluding to that saying it's inescapable. You have to use social media. So therefore those were his premises, which I agree with what you're saying. But people like this have created a world in which you cannot live. Exactly. They, yeah. you know, they want to create this world. Yeah, they they want to. And they yeah. did create it. And now it's done. You know, that that's what this is the difference. They called it the fourth industrial revolution in the in the World Economic Forum thing. But this is the thing that really scares me. When you look back at history and you think about how there have always been tyrants and dictators and um uh, uh, totally controlling governments and plots and conspiracies and and mind control and injustice, slavery, all that stuff has always been there. But now the technology is, I, I, I mean, it, it feels like it can make true total totalitarianism possible. Now you can always just sit on your hands. You know, if we all did that, no matter when, until they put chips in your freaking brain, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, maybe this isn't really possible, but when you read this stuff, it looks like they're pretty confident they're moving forward in these directions. I mean, chips in your brain is in the World Economic Forum, so everything's in there. Just click around. Well, they're already website. doing it in, in a yeah. company in Ohio. But when, but the way the World Economic Forum talks about what they're doing, they talk about they get they they seek out leaders of business, politics, academia, and all the other forums, and they look to infiltrate education, civil society, governments, businesses, yeah. industries. Like they talk about who they use and and where and what they target, and it's basically they name names. Um, they have you know, like Palantir and Rand. Like these are all um partners of theirs. Yeah, I mean you can you can find all that. But I'm what saying you described right there is is Edward Bernays engineering of consent model. Is that exactly? Yeah, well that was one of the headlines that said Brexit can reverse if the people go for it, Tony Blair says. You know, I, I could see that that that's what is going on here. But they have this plan in place of of how they're going to control every single aspect of society and uh you know, I want to say, ah, they'll never chip every brain. They're not going to chip my brain. I don't think they, they expect to chip my brain. They want to, they want to chip my grandchild's brain or yeah, my grandchild probably. It's probably coming sooner than we think. They're doing a lot of neural interface and they're introducing it through the medical field to help people who are paralyzed. I noticed that where the people prosthetic stuff has really advanced since the Iraq IED improvised explosive devices, I think. They're called blew off everybody's arms and legs and they and now they have just these amazing prosthetics that all came out, I think, of uh, you know, stuff that comes out of war. Yeah, same thing with gene editing, but I don't want to go into that today because I want to get to a couple more of these clips. Yeah. This is the last Soros one. See if Aww, you can spot we were having such fun. See if you can spot the threat in it. Let me point out that we are living 
in a revolutionary period. All our established institutions are in a state of flux. I lived through similar conditions in my life, most recently some 30 years ago. That's when I set up my network of foundations in the former Soviet Empire. 30 years ago, the dominant creed was international governance and cooperation. The European Union was the rising power and the Soviet Union the declining one. Today, however, the motivating force is nationalism. Russia is resurgent and the European Union is in danger of abandoning its values. As you will recall, the previous experience didn't turn out well for the Soviet Union. The Soviet Empire collapsed and Russia has become a mafia state that has adopted a, national, a nationalist ideology. My foundations did quite well. The more advanced members of the Soviet Empire joined the European Union. Now our aim is to help save the European Union in order to radically reinvent it. Holy crap. Hold Did on. Did you hear that part where he goes? Yes, they, they were successful in bringing those countries to the West. You might remember it didn't turn out well for the Soviet Union. What was that a threat for? He says that he established his foundations in Russia, and he worked with the CIA to help destabilize Russia through those foundations. That's in the well, CIA declassified documents. And then, then he makes that comment, it didn't turn out well for Soviet Union. Earlier in the speech, he talked about how he's putting all his money in his foundations in America. That was a threat to America. Oh, yeah, I was overwhelmed by all the, the stuff. One, Okay, you might have to play that part for me again. Hold on a second. I have a few things to say. He <laughs> was saying, He was saying, my organizations, which I established in the 80s, were successful in that they brought these countries over. So the Warsaw Pact countries were, there was NATO on one side of the divide, and the Warsaw Pact countries were the, the Soviet republics that became independent after the USSR broke up. Or was it before? Um, 1994. Okay. They brought them over, and they also destabilized the Soviet Union. Okay, so... I don't know what order is it, but yes, they destabilized the Soviet Union and uh, the Warsaw Pact countries were not supposed to join NATO. And I think that was our agreement to get the wall to come down in Germany. And one by one, Clinton, I believe, brought them all into NATO, which was absolutely wrong. They also, the Clinton regime, also oversaw this mafiaization of Russia through Boris Yeltsin. And um, I assume Soros was in on that. That's what it sounds like he was saying, right? Did I say that again? Uh, was was Soros saying he was in on the disintegration of the USSR and Russia? Because yes, they, he was saying he took yeah. down the Soviet Union. And, and he calls it like a mafia state with nationalist tendencies as if that was something that just emerged unrelated to his 
Right. I, either it either it came out of him just destroying the country for no good, you know, without a plan, or that was his plan. And I I think it's in evidence that it was the plan. It's how they gave the money away. It's how they broke it up in Yeltsin's time. They kind of uh, it was very corrupt, from what I understand. Yeah, he tried to kind of separate them there by saying that his foundations did very good. The good Russians came over to the EU or whatever. <laughs> but look. It's. I also thought you might have noticed. I'm sure you did. That how um, manipulative the language is. So he was going to say the Soviet. I know Republic, he switched, he to, yeah, switched I to empire. I mean, the empire. Yeah. So manipulative. That's why I think you're probably right. It is for that crowd, but it's it's so basic. I feel like it's for us. There's a couple parts I edited out just because he drags on for too long. Yeah. One of the clips we played earlier when he says that the nemesis of the IT foundation or the IT companies is going to be whatever that guy's name is at the EU, when he says that real, you know, uh, like at that movie line, the room kind of erupted in, in clapping. Clapter, I guess is that a word? They, went, <laughs> they were like, woo! That's so they great. were like all about it, yeah. Wait, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm saying when he was when he was saying that the the tech companies are nemesis or nemesis earlier and their time has come and their nemesis is going to be and then he named a guy I couldn't understand the guy's name. The guy, well, you could probably look it up. He's the what I don't I didn't catch the guy's name either, but he was the competition czar of the EU. When he said that, when he said that this is this guy is going to be the nemesis. Of the the tech company, so he's going to be the guy that just makes their life hell. The crowd was like, "Of the big tech masters of the universe," which is an expression he borrowed from the financial sector in the Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe, where that that those were the evil were the villains of the eighties, were the masters of the universe. You know, he's tapping into a stereotype. Right. That's well, this cra- the crowd. Out. My point is, the crowd was the crowd totally went wild. Into it. Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. Christine Lagarde is there, who is a master of the universe. These, there, are, they are the masters of the universe. They talk about big tech like it's the enemy, but the people sitting there are truly the masters of. The well, universe. at the end of the thing, somebody they took questions, and the guy who was getting the questions obviously collected the questions that he wanted to take because some guy in the back goes. If you hate tech companies so much and social media, why do you invest so much in them? No and, way. And, yeah, and Soros kind of smirked. And, and then the guy then the guy who was reading the questions went to the first question. He skipped it? Yeah, Wait. he didn't address that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, but he did he, smirk, though. He did smirk. But that's to your point before. Like, he could easily have just said, what do you want me to do? abandon it you know if i can get in but but here's the thing that proves the lie not in his morality but in the idea that he doesn't control it of course they do control it they control it you know what i mean it's not out of his control it's all part of his plan i mean like i think yeah it's part of his plan to do what he's describing he's already implementing he's already taking over it yeah it's so in a nutshell what I've noticed in industry after industry, which is why I hate the like quote privatization thing is the government comes in and monopolizes a sector. And then instead of, you know, when, when 
then then when it looks inefficient, you have all these public private people coming in saying we need to privatize it for efficiency. But they're not saying we need to take it out of the realm of being provided publicly, take it out of the realm of taxpayer dollars, taking it out of the realm of being mandated or regulated or controlled. They are just privatizing the delivery and the profits and they ensure the profits. I have seen where they say you are, it's cost plus 10%, you know, and I'm not saying that's unheard of in the private world, but it's, it's just, if you, it's where you start to wonder. I think this is where you get true believer communists. This is what they think. Like people I know are socialists that, when you do it that way, you're letting this private sector, this fascist kind of partnership, take a lot of money. Because if you've got a billion-dollar industry and you're getting a 10% profit, it's whatever, $100 million. You get to take a lot of money off the table and put it in your pocket. If you're in Soviet Russia and you're the bureaucrat who's running the water plant, it's hard for you to put $100 million in your pocket. You do it. You're going to do it. You're going to get it done. But you can't flaunt it. You know, the outside of your house has to be crappy and you have gold toilets. But you know what I mean? It's harder. And if you get caught, they stop you. So this kind of abuse is what leads to that kind of collectivism where it's like we would rather have no productivity. We'd rather, ha- rather have gray buildings. We'd rather have no choices than to be exploited this way by government-connected oligarchs. You know, it's a very destabilizing, ideologically bankrupt uh, position. And it's, you know, it's fascism, I guess. But anyway, I just see it in, in, in industry after industry. They build them up inside the government and then they dole them out uh, to the private sector, highly regulated. Uh, their guys are in control. Then they all go and hang out at some ski resort. All right, let me play something while it's fresh because it goes right with what you just said. You're talking about collectivism. Now, the Women's March, which is part of the resistance, part of Indivisible, these are co-chairs of the Women's March, and they held one of those live training sessions on the anniversary of the Women's March. This clip right here, they're telling people what they need to do to make this blue wave happen. Keep in mind, Soros funds like 40 of the organizations that are part of the Women's March, that are part of Indiv- of Indivisible. Yeah. And I think moveon.org, he funds them almost totally. So he was talking about the collectivism stuff you were just saying. Now listen to what they're telling their followers they need to do in November. In the general election, what we're going to do is we're calling it a collective vote. Mm-hmm. Put your politics to the side. Put your little feelings to the side. Vote for black people, vote for undocumented people, vote for incarcerated people, vote for Muslims, vote for refugees, vote for immigrants. I don't care about you like this one, you don't like that one. In November, you got to do the right thing, and you got to join us at the Women's March and all of our allies who are here today for a collective vote that we should have took back in 2016 mm-hmm. so we could find right. ourselves in this mess. Mm-hmm. So that's where we go in as a Women's March. Collective vote. Collective vote. Vote for undocumented illegal immigrants. Whoa. I'm so disillusioned. seriously though when it goes to that level that's your so what thing yeah so what i said that so right it's like what but they go into talking about democracy 
democracy. Trans <laughs> rights or women's rights. Because trans are women too. Wasn't that the sign? The that kids? was the sign, which by the way, they were all they were doing all the talk on these signs about, oh, the sign game at the women's march is strong this year. Look how creative they are. And the late night shows were showing, look at these funny signs. All the ones they showed on the late night show, I found like 10 versions of the signs being held up by different people. None of these people made these signs. Oh, right. The Women's yeah. March came there with the signs and they just handed them to people or they sent them yeah. an email script and told them what to write verbatim. They were Dude, all. When I, when I marched against Obamacare, I spent four I hours making my signs. Threw I did your blood on it. <laughs> I do the blood tyranny today, revolution tomorrow, which people thought said tranny today. So I guess maybe maybe Soros is organizing a blue revolution. You know, he colors the color revolutions. Maybe if they don't win, maybe the uprising will be the blue revolution. All right. Now, speaking right? of that, it's the blue wave, right? Right. Yeah. This, and they're about to mention that this is at the beginning of of their meeting. They're talking about what they need to do in order to turn the country blue in 2018 and then take back the White House in 2020. And the end of it, I find really interesting. If we are going to win in 2020, we need to make sure that our states are flipped and not just flipped for just blue, right? We really believe that the blue that needs to happen is a progressive blue that has values of the fight for 15, that has values of of an education program that people don't have to, um, you know, go in debt for. And and we believe in that future. And we're proud to have endorsed Stacey Abrams, who's running for the governor of Georgia. The first person they mention running for the governor of Georgia. And by blue, we don't just mean blue. What they mean is we mean red, communist. All right, so here, here's what they're doing with this Women's March thing, and I'll, I'll play this clip. Let's fight for 15. And flip your state. I knew it wasn't just flip the sixth, flip the south, flip the flyovers, flip, flip, flip. Yeah, yeah. They're, what they're doing is they're going around. It's called Power to the Polls, where they're enabling people to to register to vote online. They're going. They're doing a nationwide 10-state tour to the battleground states, and they're trying to get – Anybody and everybody registered to vote, and they're delivering you know, this type of propaganda to them, but they're also training women in each of these states. They have like – they said like a couple thousand people enrolled in their campaign training programs, and they're getting people who are part of the resistance to run for office. Because, and this is totally straight out of this Bolshevik strategy and tactics book is you create your own army at the local level and you get them to run for office because you can control them then. This gives them an, a, 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 a leva of control at the local level if they can get them to win. Here is right, right. them describing it. Women's March is launching a national campaign called Power to the Polls. This isn't just a voter registration tool. This is also a voter education tool. And it's a way to stay in touch with us as we go on our tour because um, we will be hitting states all across the country. Texas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida. Now, when she says it's an education tool, that was Edward Bernays' word for Indoctrination. Yeah. So they're going there to deliver George Lakoff's moral high ground, progressive points into these people's minds. Yes. A kid said to my son the other day that he was a feminist. So my son says, you know, he's more into girls than I am. So like he's just saying that. But he said to me, you know what I mean? I was like, yes. So he's saying he's a feminist to get 
girls to like him. Yeah. So to, to he, get girls to be to take him to the women's march and emasculate him. Yes. So he said. So the kid said to my son, "Are you a feminist?" And my son said, "No." And he said, "Well, if you're not a feminist, you're a misogynist. You have to pick <laughs> one. You have to pick one." And my son said, "I don't think that way. I think everybody has the same rights." And the kid said, "No, you have to pick one." God, it's child abuse. This kid's parents should be. He's being intellectually and politically bullied. And then he gets in trouble. My son gets in trouble because they're like, why doesn't he <laughs> snap? You see these people at the women's march dressed like giant vaginas with teeth walking <laughs> with their kids. Yeah. yeah. And they're holding up a sign that has a C word on it. And there's a five-year-old walking with them. I'm like, this is terrible. Yeah. I noticed the five-year-old looked quite sallow. I feel like she did not look like a well-cared for little child. She really looked like she already, you know, she grew up in the gulag. Born in captivity. Yeah, the mom spent all her money and time making that five foot tall walking <laughs> vagina costume. I don't know. It's so it's it's so crazy. It's so emotive. It's so it makes you lose faith in humanity. Like you look back, I look, I used to I used to really love like 18th century Russian and British literature. And like the really the Russian literature, not so much. It was great and didn't have this problem. But the British stuff. It would talk about lower classes as really being uneducated and unworthy. You know what I mean? Like you just, you can't, don't give them, don't even give them an education because then you'll have all these unemployed pontificators laying around. It's worse for them to educate them. And I'm from a very blue collar family, class, whatever. And I... I'm pretty intellectual and independent. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't want to be a slave. I want, I wanted to carve my own path. I didn't want to be, um, my mom was stuck home with nine kids and, and my father didn't really have to care if she was happy because where was she going to go? You know, like I don't like oppression at all and I don't want it. But when, you know, when you see how easy the masses are manipulated, you know, but my own daughter, she's on the other side from my yeah. son. She's, she saw, I showed her the pictures you sent me. I was horrified. I was like, this is what you're, you, you're admire the people who went to this march. She's like, that hat is awesome. I was like, yeah. oh my gosh. You know, yeah. and this is a smart girl who I have tried to teach, but her, she hardly admits it anymore, but she used to admit, mom, it's just too hard your way. People won't like me. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it is challenging. I, it's yeah. Not, she's a kid. Hopefully she'll be smarter when she gets older. <laughs> I don't want them to be on either side of the dialect. Right. I, it is my, my son is not sophisticated enough to argue with that kid who's spouting regurgitated propaganda that will be supported by the authorities, but he's smart enough not to fall for the dialectic trap. And that's a great place for a kid his age to be. All right. You're talking about the kid saying he's a feminist and you know, your son saying everybody has equal rights. Listen to what this girl who is one of the co-chairs of the Women's March says. And this is what she's propagating to all these people. For myself as a white woman in the movement, before I met Linda and Tamika and Carmen, I wasn't applying that critical analysis and that lens of looking at gender justice from a racial lens. You can actually have a conversation with your family about their implicit biases. You can think about yourself and say like, huh, did I, get, did I walk to the other side of the street 
when that black person went by me, mm-hmm. you know, and say, like, what does that mean about the ways that I'm complicit in white supremacy in this country? And how else is that affecting the way I make decisions, the way I vote, the way I think of myself in terms of politics, the way I look at mm-hmm. candidates? And this is the work that we have to do. It's the heavy lifting that, in particular, white people, we need to hold ourselves accountable to yes. each other mm-hmm. in 2018. Mm-hmm. So you're a white supremacist mm-hmm. if you look across the street at a black person. I had uh, a friend, super liberal friend, who uh, she was walking one way, black guy was walking towards her, and she crossed the street. And he said to her, he challenged her, he said, you walk across the street because I'm black? And she said, no, I walked across the street because you're a man. <laughs> you know, and you got to think about that. It's, it's with women, men are scary. Like, it's, and that's not sexism. No, of course not. If it's late at night, you got to do that for anybody. It does not matter of race. All right. I got one more for that. We got a few more minutes. Need to uh, wrap it up. But, but she um, referred to critical theory, critical analysis. Critical but that's critical. Yes. I know. She said critical analysis. Right. But that's critical theory, which is cultural Marxism. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Interesting. This is definitely cultural Marxism. Yeah. All right. Now, this one is – this was to me the most telling moment during this whole little presentation. This is Linda Sarshour. She's one of the co-chairs of the Women's March Movement, and she's about to tell the people watching, their followers, their marching orders. you got to join these organizations that are going to keep you up to date, keep you informed about what's happening because you can't act if you're not informed. Mm-hmm. I don't move until somebody tells me to move, and that's what you need to do. you got to stay informed, but you got to be ready to act quick i don't move until someone tells me to move wow this is sad to me and by the way this is the reaction i was afraid of with trump that you've got to stick to your principles or you're gonna get you don't know what you're gonna get okay well maybe i can lighten it up here i can we can play i have a two games for you two two quizzes (laughs) okay oh i'm not great at quizzes you might, you might be able to get these, or maybe not. All right, this first one, I want you to focus on the song because obviously you can't – you're not going to be able to see the images. But this is a montage. It's a montage of the Women's March. So just you know, picture images of women dressed in giant vaginas, vulgar signs, <laughs> emasculated men, and really confused children going on the screen while this song is playing. I want you to see if you can name that artist. This is a new song written for the Women's March. See if you can name that artist in 25 seconds. Once in your life You may get the chance to stand Against a column of tanks What this uh, president is doing is just so wrong. Name that artist. I, I don't. No idea. You're going to catch on to this trick one of these days. <laughs> Joe Scarborough. <laughs> because I was thinking, like, he's not a very good singer. No, it's not like a Christian revival song. Is, oh, my gosh. It doesn't even sound good scratchy like Dylan or Tom Waits. I'm like, it just sounds like he's got an untrained... Yeah, it's terrible. Oh, my goodness gracious. Was yeah. he wearing what? the pink hat when he was singing the song? 
I didn't see him singing it because it cut to the montage. He might have been in the giant vagina costume. That's what <laughs> Mika makes him wear around the house. <laughs> All right, I have a second challenge for you. This one's kind of like the game Clue. I used to love Clue when I was growing up. Me too! <laughs> All right, here's the question. On the Monday following the government shutdown, the government reopened. What did Chuck Schumer do that day? Whom did he do it with? And where did they do whatever was done? I guess another way to put it would be, what was Chuck Schumer's crime? Who was his accomplice? And where did the crime take place? Do I get the clip or I have to answer first? No, you have to answer. The, the clip is the answer. Okay. Um, what did he do with the shutdown? I remember listening to his very poorly read speech. I started thinking, like, these guys don't even practice. They're, it's supposed to be a rabble-rousing speech. And he was stumbling over his words. He caved, right? Uh, uh, what did he do? Did he... Immigration? I don't know. What? Right. Here's what Chuck Schumer did, who he did it with, and where he did it. Chuck Schumer cut a deal with the white supremacist in the Oval Office. <laughs> <laughs> that was indivisible leader Ezra Levin. All right, I now officially no longer believe in democracy in any way. I used to be like, ah, uh, it's theoretically impossible. Now I'm like, okay, this is it. This is our free press. This is this is what we've got. This is how our our uh, votes are being shaped. I, maybe I'm happy that I don't believe the votes actually count. Maybe this is a good thing. Uh, great, because I got another one from Ezra that might make you feel even better about things. This clip and the one I just played are both from an indivisible training session. These are the talking points they're putting in their followers' heads. This next clip, I feel like, is how this Ezra guy greets people when he's walking down the street. How he says hello to colleagues the first time he sees them in the morning. Hey, the Republicans are just shutting down the government because they have a, a racist, xenophobic agenda that they're unwilling to budge on. Yeah, that's what I said. He sounds so clownish about it. Like he's hosting Sesame Street or something. Hey! I actually have to say on a on a... A serious note that Mark or Mike Mulvaney, whatever the like budget guy, he made a v very valid point that one has absolutely nothing to do with the other. Like the DACA thing had nothing to do with the not signing the fifth continuing resolution of the over the past year. Yeah, it had nothing to do with it. They're lying. Trump signed the FISA thing six more years of yeah. being able to search through all the stuff in their dragnet. Yeah, but we don't get stories about that. We get a steady stream of increasingly surreal news, none of which has any verifiable sources. It has like a high number of unnamed sources, but nothing verifiable. It, you know, it's Trump getting spanked by a porn star with a magazine that has him and his children on it. No sources. It's Trump saying that everybody in Haiti has AIDS. We had a whole day of talking about secret societies and... Oh, oh yeah. The deep state, the, the FBI deep state, those two people texting each other, that's the deep state. It was they a joke. Kennedy. They, and CNN just reveled in the fact that it appeared to be a joke once it came out. They were like, oh, they're spreading fake news. And then that was a joke. They showed the context of it, and, and which is obviously a setup.
you know, throw it out there so people spread right. it right. and then, then then reveal it to be a joke. It was something like, oh, that must be the first meeting of the secret uh, organization. Oh, oh, it was an actual joke. And Philip Mudd's on CNN going, you oh, know what, crap. Anderson? I was in it. I shouldn't tell people this. I was in a secret, secret organization at the CIA. You know what that is? That's code for let's go get beers after work. Oh, I have to correct the record on something. When, I, when we were doing the sexual harassment thing and I said that girl should just walk away when they're talking smack, I used to walk away. And they, the guys in my office negotiated a contract with the boss where if they got fired, they would get a ton of money. So when um, layoffs came around, I was the only one not in on that contract. So they fired me because I was the only one who wouldn't get a ton of money. That's so it, it really mattered. Yes. I mean, so I, I, I did not mean to be insensitive. No, it's a shame that they're ruining people who are actually, they're not enabling people to actually real victims to get justice. Well, if the, if the owner people. of the bank had been in on it, I couldn't have even, I wouldn't even be complaining, but the, but the owners of the bank assured me equal treatment. And this was clearly not equal treatment, but I, I, I had like a crappy contract, um, which I had to actually fight to get enforced. So I didn't really lose out, but they did. Uh, I did suffer from that and there is real yeah. damage. However, Absolutely. I don't think private entities owe me anything except for to fulfill the contracts that they make with me. There's, there's absolutely like real damage and yes. real victims. But right now, real victims aren't getting justice because they're accusing anybody. I'm not going to go into it, but I know two people. Well, Oh, yes, I, I know. know. Do you remember the clips I played for you of Mika saying we need to bring the guys yes. in, we need to get yes, the guys to rat other guys out? And they, yep. they're setting, they were trying to set the standard of, they said, if you're a man, this is what the BBC and what all these, uh, like Alyssa Milano and all these people were advocating. If you're a man and you you subjectively see someone else committing what you believe to be sexual harassment or, or, you know, even if you just think somebody is, maybe you don't even see it. It's your duty to intervene and do something, right? So there doesn't even have to be a victim. And that seems kind of ridiculous. But in the case of one of the people that I know who's lost his job, there is no victim. I'm not going to go into it because I, I don't want to oh get anybody gosh. in trouble. But right. um, at least right now, anyway, um, <laughs> what they're doing to him is a total disgrace. This is always the problem with political surveillance and them gathering all our information up to put in a fusion center and the FISA thing where they're allowed to, um, you know, troll through that information and, uh, and try to find stuff to use against us is that it's not like it, it's, it defies the rule of law. It's not taking laws and applying it to everyone equally. It's taking ridiculous laws over, overarching laws, too much law. And then every, if they have every, every piece of information on you and they don't like you for political reasons, they can find whatever information can fit into some law that they can, uh, use to persecute you. And that's why yeah. this FISA thing is so bad. It's so bad to be able to go into, uh, getting information on people without a warrant. It's terrible. It's data mining, you know, in, in the criminal yeah. sense. It's terrible. It's absolutely unconstitutional. It's, it breaks my heart because due process is the only thing that's going to be left to get you, you know, if you, if you're in jail or whatever and they start, uh, you know, the rights are, are critical, are the critical for political liberty. Speaking of that, here's another odd thing I heard while flipping through the news the other day. The NSA has every text message that we can get those text messages if need be. 
Uh, <laughs> dude, don't you realize that uh, I'm on like a 90-day austerity plan? No drinking, no no vulgarity, nothing. I'm I'm absolutely could not be. Uh, my nerves could not be more acutely sensitive to abrasion. I can barely stand to listen to the State of the Union address. I have to though. State of the Union address. Up. An interesting fact. They are testing the company. I believe it's one of the first draft news companies. So a George Soros funded operation mm-hmm. is testing new real time fact checking AI technology. So they can <laughs> tell us what Trump is lying about. The robot king. Uh, how about Harry Reid? Why didn't we have that when Harry Reid was around? How about Dick Durbin? Dick Durbin's a huge liar. They should make they should make them wear the little wristwatches that go ah, every time they lie. Yeah, that's a great idea. Like on Demolition Man, except that, for lying. That would bring down the government. <laughs> I could All go right. on and on. We can't. We can't go on and on. Well, thank you. Ah, it was a pleasure. And thank you to our patrons and everybody who has donated financially to the show. You are the reason we're able to continue doing the show. You motivate us, and every little bit helps, so thank you. Go to the propagandareportdaily.com, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Android, subscribe on YouTube. All the buttons are there. Leave us a review on iTunes. We love getting feedback. Helps us show up higher in the search engine, and thank you guys for listening. See you next time.